joy that we anticipate or remember the gift of your son. Promised as we sang in the first song about Israel's hope, the coming of Emmanuel. And us now being on the other side of your appearing, O Christ, eternal son, uniting yourself to humanity to come and to live as our substitute, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf and to bear its curse for us, to rise again from the dead, defeating death, and to send us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the seal and pledge, until we are brought safely home, our eternal home, awaiting that great day yet in the future still where there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which we will dwell with you forever in resurrected bodies, never to die again, never to experience any reality of sin again outside of us or inside of us, but to live as participants in that eternal fellowship that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God, have enjoyed from all eternity and engrafted us into through the Son. And so we need to think much on that day, and we know it all began in one sense in terms of its final fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the need began far before that in Genesis chapter 3, which we'll see this morning. So help us in our time together to marvel at that, O Christ, which you have undone on our behalf. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, you know, with each season, it's nice to do a series of messages or to take a topic that's connected to the season and to think about it and direct our attention, use that time of year as a time to think maybe more specifically on something that uh, we don't throughout the rest of the year. So Easter, we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in Christmas, we think about the birth of Christ, and and that is one of the reasons that we as Christians celebrate it. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. We understand that and its connections historically Christmas with pagan festivals and so on and so forth. And, and that's fine as far as it goes. But it is an opportunity for us in our culture at this day, at this time, in either case, to reflect on these great wonders of the gospel. And namely, at Christmas, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. More Technically, and more importantly, not merely the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the incarnation of the Son of God, who would be our substitute and our Savior and our Lord. So that's what I want to do for the next several weeks, uh, all the way up to the 23rd, and then we might have to end it the first week in January, is to look at this hope, this promise that God has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. And originally, I was simply going to look at the first instance of that promise, which you might know is uh, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But it doesn't take long to spend time in that passage to realize uh, that there's more there uh, in in terms of its fullness that will not be covered in uh, merely one week. So we're going to go back to the beginning, not the beginning in terms of Genesis 1 through 2 of God as creator, but the beginning of the very need and the very context of the promise of the Savior, which was namely humanity's fall into sin, humanity's entrance into the state of condemnation and spiritual death. And to do that, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 3. So you can go ahead and 
turn your, to there in your Bible. To this narrative account, it's not an analogy, it's not mythology, it is a narrative account of actual events that happened that led to the ruin of humanity from our original state. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be looking primarily at verses 1 through 7 this morning. If we have time, we'll go all the way down to verse 13, but primarily we will be looking at verses 1 through 7. And before we read that, I want to take just a few minutes to reintroduce us to the main characters, if you will, the main persons who are involved in this count. And the first is God himself. Now, God isn't mentioned in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. He is after the fall. Of course, that's by walking in the garden from whom Adam and Eve hid themselves from his presence after now having the the corruption and the guilt of sin infecting, affecting them. But God is the main character throughout all of Scripture. He is at the very beginning to the very end, the one who brought all things into existence, who is ruling and reigning over what he has made. He is the creator. He is the ultimate authority. God is the definer of reality. There is no right understanding of reality and our purpose, even our very own identity as human beings apart from a right knowledge of God. And this is important to understand even in the context of Genesis chapter 3. He is the source of creation's design. He is the source of all life. He is the source and of man's identity, of man's purpose, of man's roles. He is good. He is holy. He is the uncreated creator of all things. He is involved with his creation and all that he has made. And yet he stands separate from it. That is the transcendence of God. He is other than his creation, but he is near. He is near. He is involved. That is, for some of you who will be interested in it, the imminence of God. He is transcendent and yet imminent. And as the creator of all things, as the source of life... He is also the ultimate end of all things. To borrow the words of Paul, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He is at the center of all that he has made. He is also judge who pronounces the sentence of death for rebellion. And he is the one who alone can bring life. So God is... The center of the story, he is the center of all of Scripture. It is his revelation, his self-revelation. We have here as well man, male and female, mankind, humanity, and the two genders of male and female. Man is the pinnacle of all that God created. Man alone bears God's image. Man alone is ascribed or described as having the image of God within them, within us. Now, whatever the image is exactly, and that's a matter of much discussion, it is a likeness to God that singles man out from all of creation and enables him to rule over it as a co-regent, if you will, ruler for God and to have fellowship and relationship with God. Fellowship and relationship that is made evident by his role as ruler over creation and his responsibility to make moral choices that have real consequences. Ultimately, as a footnote to that, the greatest consequence for their moral choices would fall on God himself and not man in one sense. He was created without any inner defect. 
God looked at everything he made after the creation of man and it was very good. There was no corruption, there was no sin, there was nothing raised up against the knowledge of God. It was beautiful. It was a place of happiness, enjoyment, sustenance, abundance, and flourishing. As Ecclesiastes said, God created man upright, but he has sought out many devices. And then there's a third person in this story, uh, introduced to us as the serpent, which we will understand is, in fact, a serpent, but not merely a serpent. It is a creature embodied by one known to us as Satan. He is coming to us here in the guise of an embodied creature with malicious intent against God. Interestingly, Satan is not mentioned anywhere in this passage, and he's mentioned a few times only in the Old Testament. We have Satan, who is identified as such, who presents himself with the sons of God in Job chapter 1 and 2. We have Satan in Zechariah chapter 3, I think it's around verse 10, who is accusing Joshua the high priest. He stands as an accuser of the brethren. But in the New Testament, it is abundantly clear that the serpent here is, in fact, Satan. In 2 Corinthians, I'll just mention these to you. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, he is the serpent in the garden who led the mind of Eve astray. He is identified as the serpent and the dragon, the one who is in the garden in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Who is he? And let's just take a little more time to introduce this character, if you will. One describes him as this way. It's a, it's a, a short way, a, a comprehensive way of describing him. It says this, He is a high angelic creature who, before creation of the human race, rebelled against the Creator and became the chief antagonist of God and humanity. That's a, that's a good short way to describe him. A high angelic creature who, before creation of the human race, rebelled against the Creator and became the chief antagonist of God and humanity. And that's, in fact, how he's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 3. Satan is of the angelic class of creation. There are angels, there is the angelic realm, and there is humanity. And he is of the angelic realm. He came into being, in all likelihood, before not only the creation of humanity, but before God's formation of the earth and the visible universe. We would infer this from Job 38.7 that says, When all the morning stars sang together and all of the songs, sons of God shouted for joy in response to God laying the foundations of the earth and forming everything that we know as the end of his created work, namely the earth and the universe. And so likely they're referring to the angelic response of which Satan would have been a part of that chorus singing the praises of God in his work of creation, which reveals his glory. And if we take Isaiah 14, which I think we mentioned a couple weeks ago, and Ezekiel 28, as addresses to Satan as the power, the demonic and the evil power behind the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre, then we infer as well that he was an angel of particular glory. And power among all of the other angels, which in fact is seen by the power that he wields now. He didn't gain a new power, 
And the power that he has now is extraordinary, is indeed a power that he had before created to use for good, now used for evil and rebellion. He is one who became proud and wanted to usurp God's rightful and sole honor and glory as the one to whom worship and obedience was due. Uh, Sin entered into his heart. He wanted what was not rightfully his. And if we take Revelation 12.4 as a reference to the original fall of Satan, then in an attempt of rebellion, he managed to coerce and take with him one-third of the angels of heaven to join him in this mounted rebellion against God, out of, after which they were thrown out of heaven, removed from their previous position of honor, and consigned to a future judgment. In fact, Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Jesus reminds us that eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. His angels. Hell exists because Satan exists and because the demons who are fallen angels exist. And then those whom he deceives will be there, be there with him. He is known as through other titles throughout Scripture. Let me just list them to you. We won't go to all these passages. He's known as the serpent here in Genesis 3. He's also identified as the tempter, the enemy, the evil one, identifying his nature, the prince of demons, the father of lies, a murderer, a roaring lion, a deceiver, a dragon, an accuser of the brethren, a devil, which is also means slanderer. And he's identified as Satan, who appears as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He's also identified as the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. So those are the main characters in this account. There's God, there's man, male and female, And there is Satan in the guise of a serpent. And he is, as the one who's wielding his influence here, the one who consistently and through the ages wields his influence to instigate and to keep in man a rebellion against our maker. And so again, he's called the God of this world the primary spiritual influencer of this age. And his methods that are on display here are consistent with his methods throughout his entire history and throughout the history of the world. As a matter of fact, Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his schemes. In other words, as he has been, so he is, and so he always will be in terms of his deception. So, with that said, let's read Genesis 3, verses 1 through... We'll read down to verse 13 again. I know we read it once, but let's listen to it again. And then we'll look at this closely. Again, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent... From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me... Be with me. She gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I want to notice first here, then, the problem. The problem of man, namely, that sin entered into the world. The problem of man is that sin entered into the world. And to begin this, I want you to make an observation. And the observation is this. That in the entrance of sin into the world, we are presented with a reversal of God's order. We are presented with a reversal of God's order. Look again at verse 1, just to help you notice this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, and he said to the woman... And then a bit later on, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, if we were to go back and review chapters 1 and 2, we note that one striking beauty of God's creation is, is that it is an ordered creation. God spoke all things that came into being. God spoke and defined, as we said, the purpose of man and woman. God spoke to Adam and gave him instruction on how to live before him. Adam spoke and named the creatures, reflecting his position as head within humanity. Adam spoke and named Eve, whom was created for Adam as a helper. And together, Adam and Eve stood united as head and helper under God to rule as co-regents over his creation for his glory, for their joy, delight, and the flourishing of all of humanity. That is an ordered and a beautiful universe. It is a reflection of God's goodness. And then out of that order, we come into chapter 3, verse 1, and it's all backwards. It's backwards. Now the serpent said to the woman who gave to her husband. Now the creature comes to exercise rule and influence over the woman who listens to it and acts outside of the headship of her husband, and the husband acts outside of his role as obedient head under God and listens to the woman and listened to the serpent in full awareness of what he was doing. The created order, the beauty, and the design was reversed, and out of that ensued chaos. God, whose gracious authority over man and the loving leadership whose loving leadership over woman was to be exercised in united rule over creation for God's glory, was now creation exercising its rule over the woman who exercised her influence over man 
And God was at the bottom of the whole deal. Not even in sight anywhere. The order of creation was reversed. Sin entered and chaos ensued. And the sin that entered in the actions of both Eve and Adam can be seen as nothing less than rebellion. As nothing less than rebellion against God. And we could identify them uh, this way. Uh, the serpent, who is the deceiver, the woman who was the deceived, and Adam, who was merely the rebel. The rebel. Let's look at that a little more closely. Let's look at the deceiver, the serpent Satan. The serpent said to the woman. Now again, as I mentioned, the identity of the serpent here is a matter of much discussion, but any question of what is obvious and already from the beginning is that this is not merely an animal. This is an animal that is being directed and whose body is being used by another force, another being. And of course, the New Testament clearly identifies this serpent as Satan. I mentioned it earlier, but let me just read to you out of Revelation Chapter 12 uh, says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Serpent here is no less than Satan, and he is standing here at our very introduction to him in the role as deceiver. Clearly, the serpent demonstrates characteristics beyond that of the animal realm, speech, intelligence, moral intention. And the later enmity that is between the serpent and the woman in verse 15, we'll look at next week, that is worked out in the categories of humanity, shows him to be more than a mere Creature, more than a mere creature, more than a mere serpent. Now, just as a side note here, Eve's willingness to listen to this beast and seemingly show no shock at it uh, is probably more likely than anything an indication of the wonders of the garden. In fact, anything was possible and could be expected. And so she engages in a conversation with the serpent. And of course, His intention here is not merely to engage in a conversation, but it is to lead Eve in a certain direction and through Eve to lead Adam into a certain direction and a certain course of action. In other words, it is, as the writer of John of Revelation said, it is to deceive. It is to deceive. Let's consider his deception. Uh, Let's just consider it briefly. There are three parts to his deception here. An easy way to recognize this is uh, by, you know, you start it with the same letter. The first is he caused doubt in the mind of Eve about the character and the word of God. Secondly, he denied the word of God and he then perpetuated his deception. So there's doubt and denial and deception. Before we look at these, notice something that's a more fundamental point. And that is this, that Satan engages her mind. He engages her mind. 
her mind. He addresses her thinking. His goal is to reshape her perception of who she is, who God is, and her situation in the garden. By reshaping her perception of God, her situation, and her relationship to her husband and in the garden, he then will influence her desires that will then produce a certain direction of the will. Do you see how that works? It's the mind, it's the desires, and it's the will. But it begins with her mind. It begins with her thinking. One as well said this, Satan's chief activity in the life of Christians, and we could say and also of unbelievers, is to cause them to think contrary to God's word and thus act disobediently to God's will. And so what he wants to do is he wants to engage the mind. The mind. Scripture tells us as a man thinks within himself... So he is. And so this is the primary focus of satanic activity. And again, it's not new. 2 Corinthians 4.4, we mention this often. The God of this world, could you finish it, has blinded the mind of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. How does Satan work the blinding effects of sin? By hiding from the mind the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why our minds, he decides, he, he intends in 2 Corinthians eleven two to lead astray. To lead astray. So the very mark of depravity is a heart darkened and blind to the true glory of God in Christ. To personal sin and guilt. To the reality or significance of eternity in the light of God's holy justice. It is to live with a sense of spiritual autonomy and self-indulgence. That's at the heart of sin. And Satan gets there through the mind. And this is just a footnote. Here, uh, we are unwise, if we understand that, to not consider the application of it to what we pour into our minds and is going into the minds of our children. We live in a media-saturated culture and if we take seriously and with a little bit of thought that God is that Satan is the God of this world, the influencer of the evil world systems, ideologies and philosophies and culture, then we would take seriously the message that is constantly being presented to us through smartphones and Netflix and Amazon Prime and everything else that we tend to fill our minds with and our children. It is not neutral. It is not neutral. And we would take seriously on the, convert, on the other side God's instructions to us to renew our minds with the truth. To renew our minds with the truth. That's a footnote, but an important one. Notice first what he does in engaging the mind. He causes doubt about God's word and God's character. He says, first thing to her, Did God say that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Obviously, Satan knew what God had said. He was not ignorant. This was not a genuine question. It was not designed for sincere information. But to place within Eve a questioning thought about God's instruction and not only his instruction, but his motive. God's original instruction is found in verse uh, 16 of chapter 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, Eve had not been created yet, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it 
you will surely die. Notice what he did here. Notice some of the alterations that he made. First of all, look at what he places right at the beginning. As God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. At the very beginning of the statement, he is reframing the intent of the command. He's reframing it into a command of restriction, a command of suppression. Notice next that he removes the emphasis of freely. God had said you may freely eat from any tree of the garden. That was God's emphasis. Satan removes that. Therefore, removing the idea of God's liberality, his generosity that they lived within. Again, he's reframing her thinking about God in a simple question. He omits the description of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, to remove from her any sense of warning or contemplation about this new object of desire he wanted to place before her. The question itself, again, reframes the situation in a way that suggests something is sinister in God's motivation. Rather than the garden being an expression of God's abundant goodness and provision for their delight... And God's prohibition and opportunity to demonstrate trust. He now, by including every tree in the question, putting it in the negative, removing the, the language of generosity and the identity of the tree, implants in her mind rather than the thought of God's abundance, but of deprivation. Of deprivation. Look at what God has kept from you. One is said by this one statement of the snake, God, uh, God has removed, is removed from beneficent provider to cruel oppressor. And a simple question. In other words, Satan is setting the tone of the discussion. This is how we're going to talk about it. He's going to bring Eve, he's attempting to bring Eve into a discussion on his own terms. And she is going to willingly go along with it. God's goodness is now subtly, not directly, put into question. And the thought of God as one who withholds rather than one who provides is placed in her mind. And the command designed to protect is made an unfair prohibition, which is demonstrated in her reply. She says to him in response, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree of which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now it's been often noted that she added that prohibition of touching it, and and we don't know exactly where that came from. That might have been her own addition. It could be something that Adam communicated to her by wanting to put a little extra protection around the commandment. In either case, it isn't strictly what God had commanded them originally. And Satan is now successfully, in either case, implanted in her mind, again, the idea that God's command to them is one of withholding, not one of providing for them and their own joy. And so he, he puts in her mind doubt. He puts in his mind, her mind doubt. Now that happens, and we could spend our whole time on this in, in a thousand and one ways that we see that. But I would just mention to you one of the primary ways that God does that or that Satan does that is by creating doubt in the mind about the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. He does that through false presentations and views of science. 
The Enlightenment brought this this false dichotomy between faith and reason, and reason is the one that run out, and reason is by empirical data. Science kind of usurps this role of God as the ultimate giver of truth, the ultimate definer of reality, and is used rather than as a weapon to undermine the authority of Scripture. Now, the issues are complicated in that, but that is at the essence of what happens. We have those within Christian circles or under the identity of Christians who have their whole lives designed to undermine the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Bart Ehrman would be one and many others. So this this attack goes on throughout the ages. He wants to put doubt about the motives of God and about what God has communicated to us. Secondly, there's a denial of God's word. He says, you surely will not die. It's a straightforward denial. But what I want you to notice in this is, is this. The Satan has set up before Eve a choice. He's, he's set up a choice. Believe this God who holds back from you or believe me who actually has better insight into reality than God himself does. God has given you wrong information. His threat is an empty threat and there is no need to fear God's warning because it simply is not true. So again, Satan is introducing a choice. And Satan is implying that you do not have to do everything God says or even believe it. You can make your own choice. Your own choice. Does this sound familiar? You don't need to be bound by God's dubious motives and misinformed commands. You are your own person. You are an autonomous being. You need to step out independently and make your own decisions. Not bring yourself under the arcane and unhelpful and evil idea of a sovereign and supreme deity? That's what our culture thinks, right? He's the God of this world. And so that's essentially what he's saying. You need to make your choice. Are you going to be bound by this God who is clearly designing to keep you from your full potential? Or are you going to believe me who is going to open up for you a world of delights and knowledge and understanding that otherwise would be kept from you. God has clearly lied. He has misinformed you. Now, before it was an easy choice for Eve. I'll mention this later in in Adam. But now this becomes a more difficult choice because he's reshaped her perception about the command. He has denied the reality of the threat. There is no reason to fear God. There is no reason at all. He has denied the truthfulness of the command. He has denied the goodness and the holiness of God's character. And he has denied that the best interest of her happiness is in obeying God. And this is important. He has now presented himself as the true emancipator. The true deliverer. The true key to freedom. God oppresses and confines and restrains, I open up to you a world of possibilities, a world of freedom, a world where you can pursue what is for your own good and joy and happiness. As a matter of fact, we'll mention this weeks down the road, but within feminist theology, and then some of the more radical feminist theology, In fact, Genesis 3 is retold and taught with Satan as the emancipator from the bondage that she was placed under. 
So he really knows the truth. He has her best interest at heart. He can guide you into worlds of knowledge and understanding that will come only through listening to him. That's what Paul said, right, later, that he presents himself as an angel of light. That's essentially what he does here. He's the one who is your good. What has he done? Well, the more fundamental rebellion displayed here is this, is Satan has now reframed her perception of God, humanity's view of God, and placed himself in that position. Placed himself in that position. God is not the one to be listened to. I am the one who is to be listened to. So he puts doubt in the mind of man to undermine the character of God, the word of God. He denies the clear statements and warnings and threats of God, removing any fear of disobedience. And then he introduces the deception away from God's truth and intention. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Good and evil. The direct explanation is that God only told you this because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. But again, if you can take hold of your own potential and power and break free from his repressive restraints, you will enter into a new level of knowledge that will make you like God. Now, that's essentially what was at the heart of Satan's own fall. Isaiah 14, I will ascend to the holy hill. I will, I will, I will. And now he's saying to Eve, you will, you can, I can give this to you. I can open up to you freedom. One has said the serpent intends to place before her the possibility of being more than she and more than God intended her to be. I would say, isn't that at the root of man's rebellion, at the center of man's desire to live free from God's rule? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, what is it about God that so offends you? It is that ultimately, whether you reject this truth with a smile or with anger, I don't want God ruling over me. I don't want God to tell me how to live my life, to tell me who I am. I'm my own person. I'm my own person. I don't need somebody else to tell me what to do and what I should pursue. Who better could determine that than me and myself? It's to take control of your own happiness on your own terms. To see God's ways as foolish, oppressive, or simply untrustworthy. That's at the heart of unbelief. Uh, One has said, if I could give a quote here, whenever one makes his own will crucial and God's revealed will irrelevant, and that's great, irrelevant, irrelevant, just not that important or persuasive. Whenever autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person, that finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations opposed on him by his creator. And I would add this, the limitations placed on us by our creator that are for our good. And they're only seen as hateful and to be despised when the heart and the mind have already been moved away from a right and a clear knowledge of God to an idol. To an idol. So the deceiver is Satan. He causes doubt in the mind. He causes, I mean, again, even as believers, how are the ways that we can fall to these kind of things within our own heart? Just, I just don't know if obeying and trusting God in this situation is best. I've got to do something on my own. 
got to do something on my own. Now, we're to act, of course, but we're to act in faith. To not really believe that sin has the consequences that God says it has. To deny that. Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong simply because you really didn't fear any real consequences of the corrupting influence of sin on our own hearts? I have. I have and had to repent of that. Or have you ever been deceived to believe something that simply is not true? Well, there is the deceiver, and here is the deceived, the woman. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. Rather than rejecting the serpent, she listened to the serpent. And she was sufficiently manipulated by Satan's deception, turned away from God's glory, and she stretches out to receive what she believed was something God withheld. Something that by her own independent action would bring her joy and power that she could not have in obedience and submission to God alone. The sin before the act was already formed in her heart. And what was that sin? What would you say the sin was? Well, essentially the sin was this, covetousness. It was covetousness. She was not content with her limitations and the position that she had, which was a place of her flourishing, which was all she knew to that point. She wanted to take something that was not rightfully hers. That's covetousness. It's covet- that's, this, that's at the very heart of it. She wanted something more than what God had given because God wasn't enough. And notice this, that Satan made disobedience and makes disobedience seem like the most attractive and reasonable option for self-fulfillment. She now had a changed perspective on the tree, a changed perspective about God and her place in the story. In this condition, the tree was beautiful. It had a new luster. Previously, the tree was there, but she easily avoided it and even ignored it. There was no draw to disobedience because she was completely satisfied and delighted in her fellowship with God and the abundance that she had in his garden, in his goodness and his provision. The tree had no allure to her. The command of God had no negative connotation to her because of her satisfaction in God. Now the tree could not be ignored, but grabbed her attention and became a central key to her true happiness, which, by the way, just in the paradox of this, she already had by obeying God. Its appeal shined with a new luster and beauty, the promise of hidden knowledge and wisdom, of power, of self-actualization, of freedom. And the former satisfaction and delight in God, his abundance faded into the background. It was a vague memory distant and irrelevant to the present possibilities, even a hindrance to the possibility of something greater. Now, when we sin, are we not believing that lie? Are we not thinking around that same? Sin becomes to us something beautiful and attractive. It becomes, in the glory of God and the satisfaction available to us through obedience and trust in Christ, becomes, in fact, to us something that rather seems like a burden. A chain we must bear, uh, an oppressive system that we must conform to out of duty or fear. But that wasn't the case. The fact is she didn't want to before because she was so happy in God, so delighted in Him. As I've said before, the greatest, the greatest uh, essence of holiness is not what we avoid, it's what we love. It's what we love. The greatest 
deterrent against sin isn't by focusing on what we avoid, although we obviously avoid certain things. It is by focusing on the Christ whom we love. And when he becomes more beautiful and glorious, sin becomes less appealing. It becomes less attractive. But her mind was put away from that. And the desire for wisdom and knowledge that was presented to her is good, but again, she wanted it on her own terms and apart from revelation. No sense of seeking God's help, determining if these things were true. God had already been cast as fact in the light of untrustworthiness. If she was going to gain it, it was going to be gained on her own. To the Greeks, the wisdom of God is what? Foolishness. It's foolishness. To the Jews, the cross is what? Stumbling block. It's foolishness, God's ways. It's foolishness, God's provisions. It's foolishness. If you want what is truly good, you need to seize it. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it is empty. It is empty. Now, each of these descriptions makes clear the woman's reliance was upon her own senses. And again, I want to emphasize this, not the revelation of God. Her own experience and not the testimony of God's character and even the beauty and abundance of the garden, where all of this is taking place, by the way. What does that remind you of? The first thing, just as a side note here, that I thought of was, well, many things, but one was Romans 1. The, the glory of God was shining all around her in the garden. The abundance that she enjoyed was all around her, and yet she all of a sudden became blind to it and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. She believed the lie. Professing to be wise, she became a fool. That's exactly what's happening here. Exactly what's happening. She trusted in her own wisdom rather than relying on the wisdom of God. And the description of her inner reasoning also reveals her corrupted motives. Right? She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was good for food. It was desirable to make one wise. She has abandoned at this point completely any sense of constraint and submission to God's definition of reality. And she now was defining her own reality. It's not unlike 1 John. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And who rules the world? The devil. Not ultimately, but in terms of the influencer. It's a present authority that he has. So scripture is clear then that she was deceived. She was deceived, not Adam. She was deceived again by relying on her own wisdom. And again, there's, a, there's just a thousand ways that these kind of things happen to us all the time. God couldn't really mean that you are to not return evil for evil and leave or take vengeance into your own hands but leave room for the wrath of God. God couldn't really mean that you are submit yourself to every human institution. This is First Peter, right? He can't really mean that. That's foolish. He can't really mean wives submit to your husbands, even those who are disobedient to the, world, uh, the word. That has to be cultural. That's what that is. That just, that's just a patriarchal, oppressive society. It's not reality. God says it's reality. So you see, that's where we live. It's where we believe. God can't really mean for me to be honest when being honest will cost me my job. He can't really mean that. Or it will cause me some kind of humiliation. He does mean that. 
And so we have many ways that we can rely on our own wisdom. Scripture is clear again that Eve was deceived, not Adam. Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. And again, Scripture makes that quite clear. Let me read to you just one passage. In Second or First Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul says this, Uh, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. He mentions that again in 2 Corinthians 11. So Eve was clearly deceived. She was clearly made to believe something false. Adam was not deceived. Which, in fact, only makes Adam's sin worse, not less culpable. And Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11, again, that we are prone to that same kind of deception as the church of God. We are prone to that. He says, 2 Corinthians 11, I've mentioned it, let me read it to you. He says, I betrothed you to Christ as a virgin. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So she was deceived. And his methods don't change. And that's why it's so important for us to be constantly growing and holding on to the truth of God's word. It defines reality for us even when everything else may say that we are fools. No, we we cling to his word, that we're not like children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Scripture is clear again that she was deceived. Her action, yet that deception does not make her action, however, less culpable because disobedience to God's word, whether one is deceived or not, is still seen as hostility against God. And so her act was no less, even though she was deceived, an act of hostility to God. And the same again for us. He says in verse 7, The mindset on the flesh, in Romans 8, 7, is hostile toward God's, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So how did God view that act of sin as hostility? Even if we are tricked, as it were, how does God view our sin It is as hostility. Why? Because it's not subject to his law. It's not subject to his word. It's hostility. There's only two options. Obedience and hostility. So deception does not mark innocence. And here's why. Here's why. Why does her being deceived not make her innocent? Why doesn't it make her less culpable? For this very reason. The power and effectiveness of deception is only found in the corruptions of our own desires. You get that? Temptation only has its power by our, in our own corrupt hearts. In our own corrupt hearts. Deception does not, did not work on Christ because he perfectly submitted to the Father and had nothing in him that desired anything else but love and obedience to the Father. Nothing in him ever an intent, thought, or action strayed from perfect love and obedience to the Father. 
And therefore, he was able to overcome temptation. Though with much struggling, he was able to overcome it because nothing in him connected desire-wise with disobedience. That was the depth of his perfection. But when temptation comes to us and there is moral corruption and defection in our own heart, then it has a different kind of power to draw out of us sin. That's what James said, right? James chapter 1. You're familiar with this. Let me just mention it. He says that God is not tempted by evil. Why? Because there's nothing in evil that would draw out of him. It connects with anything in him. But he says this, uh, when I am tempted, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The reason that even though she was deceived, she is not innocent. And the reason that we aren't, even if we're deceived, is because that temptation can ultimately only have its effect, deceived or not, when it connects with ungodly desire within us. That's where sin comes from. That's where it comes from. So, more to say, but Eve was legitimately deceived But Adam was a rebel, and that's the third person, the deceiver, the deceived, and then Adam. So she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now notice, Adam is viewing and listening to the entire episode up to this point. She didn't search him out and find him. She turned around and handed to him the fruit of the tree. He had already abandoned his role as head and leader. He heard the command. He who heard the command was responsible for it being passed on, did not take the role of leader and confront the serpent's misrepresentation. Why didn't he? We have no idea. None. But he didn't. He did not stop his wife from eating the fruit. And without being deceived and with full knowledge, he ate the fruit. It was an act of pure rebellion against God. And because of his role as head, because of his responsibility, and because of the nature of his rebellion, Scripture tells us that sin entered into the world through Adam. Through Adam. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 And so the result and the cost of their sin was more than they bargained for. It was more than they bargained for. They had believed the lie. They both disobeyed God's clear command. Eve was deceived. Adam was a high-handed rebel. And humanity fell. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. Then it was over. Sin entered into the world we only have two chapter, or four chapters in all of Scripture without sin. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Everything in between is a world under the domination of sin and of the evil one. And so what happened to them? Well, first of all, they became aware of their nudity, of their nakedness. It's not before they didn't know that they were naked. It's not that when he says in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were were fully aware that they were in the nude, that they had no clothes on. So it's not like 
he was oblivious because he was tending the garden and went, oh, 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 wait, you have no clothes on. That's not the issue. The change didn't happen outside of them. The change happened where? It happened inside of them. That was the issue. Something internally had changed and their new knowledge brought not with to them freedom, but it brought to them enslavement to their own corruption. It brought enslavement to their own corruption. That's what it brought. And now, what was one of the most beautiful expressions in all of Scripture, really, between the purity of man and his wife, man and woman, they were naked and not ashamed, has now become the very point of their conviction and guilt and shame. Because internally, no longer did they look at one with acceptance, with pure desire, without the threat of being condemned or without the fear of vulnerability, but with complete openness and delight. And all of that now had changed, and they did have within themselves all of those things that corrupted again what God had made. And that's again how sin works for us, isn't it? We, it appears attractive, and sin has a certain pleasure. If you get angry and have an outburst of anger, there's a certain satisfaction that comes with that in the moment, isn't there? There is. That's why we do it. But afterwards, it leaves a trail of destruction. Destroyed relationships, destruction in the marketplace. You could lose your job. You could... All kinds of you could go to jail because you commit an act of violence. But in the moment, it feels really good to express it. To lie seems to offer wonderful protection, but entangles us in greater and greater deception. Sexual immorality has its moments of pleasure, but it comes with a great cost. Proverbs 7, he does not know that it will lead him to slaughter, as an ox goes to the slaughter. That it will destroy relationships. Pornography seems really pleasing until it destroys a marriage, until it corrupts your children, until it destroys what God made as good. So sin has a certain pleasure, and it has a certain allure. C.S. Lewis said, I'll paraphrase, uh, if we could see everybody, you know, as they're going to be in a thousand years. He says they would either be a creature of so, such a horrendous nature and appearance that is such that we don't even meet with in our, in our darkest nightmares. Or it would be a creature of such delight and beauty and glory that we would all be tempted to fall down and worship it. Now imagine if we saw sin with that same kind of end result reality. It would change our attitude towards it. But sin has a beauty. Sin had a beauty to them that blinded them to the beauty of God. It blinded them to the pleasures and the provisions of God. And so they fell. And so we sin as well. Well, we're going to pick up next week with chapter 7 and look at the consequence. But let me leave with this. A couple of reminders. One is we need to think seriously and wisely about the way that sin works within our hearts and within our minds. We need to think very seriously about 
how our views and our attitudes and our perceptions of reality are shaped by the things that we put into our minds. And we need to guard our minds. We need to think very clearly and have a wise and discerning understanding within our own hearts about the way that we think about God and His commandments and the danger of not obeying them. As Christians, we need to do that. If you don't know Christ and you're an unbeliever, you need to think, which you'll realize more hopefully next week, that you do need to fear God. You do need to fear God. But you also need to be aware that not only is there judgment, but there is a great glory and grace and joy and beauty about God that your soul will only know when you submit to Him and you embrace Him. So we need to be wise about our views of God and the things that influence us. We need to be wise about the way Satan works. We need to be discerning about the anatomy of sin and our own thinking and our own affections. And we need to focus our mind, however, not on the schemes of Satan, but on what? Well, the, the very thing that Eve forgot and Adam did. The beauty and the wonder of God. The beauty and the wonder of God. The majestic holiness of God. The wonders of His delight. The beauties of His sovereignty. The delightfulness and the trustworthiness of His truth. The wonders of His grace and His mercy and His kindness in Christ. The reality of all of His promises to dwell with Him on a new heaven and a new earth and a fully reconciled relationship to know the delights and the fullness of His kindness which will only be multiplied throughout all eternity. When we have that true desire and our true affection set on God, then we're not susceptible to Satan's wiles as much. And we are able to live wisely and holy and righteously in this present age. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of Christ that though we fell as a people and though we see, we see the, the clear as if Genesis 3 could have been written today. Maybe it would take on different characters and and shape as a story, but the heart of it is revealed today and it will be all the way to the final kingdom when Satan will deceive the whole world and there will be a false ruler and the nations will give allegiance to him and there will be a false prophet who deceives the whole world with false signs. So this deception is alive and well, but help us to be discerning about the way that he works in the world. Help us to be discerning about the way he works in the church and in our own hearts. But more than anything, set our affections in our heart and reveals to us the beauty and the glories and the wonders of your son who has redeemed us from our sin, who has given us the spirit and who unfolds to us and enlightens our eyes to the wonders of the new covenant and the hope that we have. To your praise and to your honor and to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.